In this episode of Influencers, Forward Party founder and 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang. Our current two-party system is not working. It's actually polarizing and pitting us against each other. The biggest surprise to me was just how in bed with the political parties most of our media organizations are. I hope we can avoid the worst of it, but uh, I certainly think a recession is inevitable at this point. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Andrew Yang, 2020 Democratic presidential candidate and author of Forward, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy, and also founder of the Forward Party, all of which we will talk about. Andrew, welcome. Good to see you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Andy. Um, so I want to talk maybe about the Forward Party to start things off. The United States... Uh, citizens of our country overwhelmingly support a third party. Over 62% support the idea in a recent Gallup poll. But why hasn't such a party succeeded previously? And why do you think your current effort is going to be different? Like you said, Andy, over 60% of Americans know that our current two-party system is not working. It's actually polarizing and pitting us against each other. We're now 42% of Americans view the other side as immoral, corrupt, and a threat to the country. It's tearing apart communities and even families. So you have to ask, where does this lead? It leads no place good. Uh, and the 62% figure you cited is higher than it's been uh, at just about any point in history. Independents now are at 50% of the population, almost twice that of self-identified Republicans or Democrats, also a record high. So you interview a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, any entrepreneur who came upon a marketplace and saw that there were two companies doing the providing and 62% of customers wanted an alternative, they would rush to start a third party, which is what we've done here with the forward party. But why do you think previous endeavors haven't really resonated? Or is there just more, is this a bigger opportunity now perhaps? Well, it's a bigger need, it's a bigger opportunity, but third parties haven't worked because the two parties are great at making it difficult, uh, where it's hard to get on a ballot, it's hard to win a race, uh, it's hard to get press attention. So we're uh, surmounting each of these hurdles in turn, and we're going to have a really exciting series of announcements uh, a little bit later this summer, uh, because so many, tens of millions of Americans want a third party, and uh, we can build it Right now, if enough of us come together and just make it happen uh, community by community, state by state. Now, I think you said that you can be a member of the forward party and still be a Democrat or a Republican. So help me understand that. Well, the, the core reforms of the forward party is championing are nonpartisan open primaries and ranked choice voting, because one of the ways that the current parties maintain a stranglehold on everything is that they have closed party primaries uh, that prohibit you from voting if you're not a registered Democrat, where I'm in New York City, uh, it's registered Republican in, uh, you know, obviously many parts of the country. So what we're not saying to people is, look, take away your registration with those parties, because by the way, that'll actually take away your vote practically in a lot of communities. So we're trying to reform the system 
Um, but there are ways we can do that from both outside the two-party system and within the two-party system. Hopefully, open primaries and ranked choice voting can become a winning electoral issue, both within the parties and among the general populace. Elon Musk is a figure drawing a lot of attention these days, and he also seems to be casting about for a political home. He endorsed you during your presidential run. Have you had any conversations with him about joining the forward party? And if not, why aren't you putting on a full court press? Uh, well, I was thrilled to have Elon support. I'm someone who thinks that he's uh, solving some of the biggest problems that our entire planet faces. Uh, and I'm excited to have that conversation with him, uh, Andy. I think that the Ford Party is a natural home for Elon because he's a builder, an entrepreneur. He wants to solve really important problems. He's not an ideological guy. And I, I think what, what's happened is that uh, he's picked up on the fact that really both parties have become ideological and he's he's as you're suggesting looking for a home the same way that millions of other americans are any conversations with him yet about it you know i i i'm excited to sit down with elon and have uh those, those conversations uh we're going to have a series of announcements upcoming uh in the summer uh so stay tuned great can can the current parties be saved though um so I'm going to, to say, I don't think the Republican Party can be saved. Uh, and as someone who's looking through the numbers, uh, a majority uh, of uh, Republican primary voters uh, still believe that the 2020 race was, uh, was not legitimate. I think that Trump is the heavy favorite to win the primary if he decides to run, which I think he will. Um, as for the Democratic Party, it's been very, very saddening, frankly, to see many Democrats stand in the way of nonpartisan reforms like open primaries and ranked choice voting, which is on the ballot in the state of Nevada. And the Democrats in Nevada took a look at it and said, wait a minute, this might mean that there's more competition for us. So they decided to uh, try and block it. Um, and there's no principled reason for them to block it except for the fact that they like having control and they don't like competition. This is about the only thing the two parties can agree on is that they both dislike competition. So. Uh, from that standpoint, it has to happen via a third party like the forward party. You're a relative outsider to the political process. What surprised you the most about running for president in 2020? And what would surprise people from outside of the political arena? No, Andy, it's one reason why I'm excited to sit down with you and Yahoo, which, which uh, I think is a, a really important source of journalism. The biggest surprise to me was just how in bed with the political parties most of our media organizations are, that they have certain narratives that they're elevating and pushing. And then as soon as that, that narrative doesn't serve, uh, frankly, to polarize us and pit us against each other, they abandon it and turn to something else that is also going to inflame Americans and um, make us aggravated and uh, upset. And that was a surprise to me. I, I thought that most journalists uh, would just try and call it like they, they saw it. But there unfortunately was an agenda at work from some of the organizations I encountered. Huh. Interesting perspective there. Uh, there's a bit of a paradox um, with your political career so far, I think, Andrew, in that you raised a lot of money, more than some seasoned politicians, and you had a very vocal fan base, the Yang Gang, et cetera. But it didn't necessarily translate into votes 
in those all important early states. So why do you think that is and what lessons do you take away from our political system um, now that you have a vantage point of a couple of years out? Oh, uh, I'm uh, honored by the support I, I got in Iowa, New Hampshire. I'll, I'll break down some of the patterns for you so you have a sense of it, uh, Andy. I won the Iowa Youth Straw Poll um, as an example, um, but the average voter's age um, in Iowa and is typical in these primaries uh, is in their 50s, really. And I think for some of them, Andrew Yang, uh, presidential candidate, was still a little bit um, new. Uh, and there were a number of Iowans who came to me and said, hey, I really hope you run again, which on one hand was very co complimentary and warm. But on the other hand, I was trying to win then and there. So, it, you know, it wasn't a great thing to hear. <laughs> but but I, I think that there is like a, a degree of comfort one builds with voters over time. Uh, it's one reason why for better, or for worse. And I'd say that there's some ambivalence about this, um, that we have a gerontocracy in this country where, you know, the, the president is... Uh, turning 80 this year, uh, our congressional leaders are in their 70s and 80s. And, and that, uh, in some ways, is fine. But in other ways, it's really holding us back on issues like technology, which uh, I think are becoming more and more pivotal. All right. So that's an assessment a little bit of your presidential run. Um, do the same thing uh, for us uh, in terms of your, your uh, trying to become mayor of New York. What do you think went right? What went wrong there? No, I, I was proud of uh, the fact that we received more individual donations than any mayoral candidate in the history of, of New York City. Uh, I think that there was one issue that became pressing for the public, and that was crime. Uh, as the city reopened last year, uh, and they looked at that and said that uh, Eric Adams, who's a former police officer, would be a better fit. Um, so I certainly wish... Uh, the mayor and the city luck in trying to to get public safety under control. Yeah, what's your assessment of New York City today under Eric Adams? And a lot of businesses have moved out in recent years. Is the city rebounded as much as you hoped? Is it too early to assess, really? Well, given who you are in this venue, you know, like one, one barometer uh, that I use is commercial real estate occupancy in Midtown. Um, and uh, last I checked, that number was around 40%, which is higher than it's been, but a lot lower than it needs to be. Uh, so I, I think that's uh, a bit of a sign of where New York City is right now. Would you consider running for mayor of New York or running for president again? Well, my goal is to be as positively impactful as I can be, uh, Andy. Certainly, I felt like I could do a lot of good as mayor. Uh, or president. Um, but right now, the most good I can do is championing the tens of millions of Americans who feel like political orphans or on the outside looking in and saying, we can build a new party, the forward party. It's not left or right, but forward um, to solve this country's problems. It's not going to come from the two major parties. The fact is, this system doesn't actually reward performance uh, or compromise. It rewards bomb throwing and staying in your corner and just blaming the other side. And oh, by the way, still winning re-election in 94% of cases. Uh, if you ran an organization and you had a 20% satisfaction level with performance, but then a re-election rate of 94%, you would say that's a crazy 
that's a crazy system. It's going to lead us to disaster. By the way, those numbers are real. You can look them up. Um, so the most important thing I can do is try and make that system work for really hundreds of millions of, um, of fed up Americans who are wondering why it's not working right now. Right. And, and, and also maybe keeping your options open in the future. I'll, I'll infer that from that. Again, I'll, I'll do whatever I think is most helpful to the country. I think this airs sometime around the 4th of July. So happy Independence Day, everyone. Declare your independence from the two parties. I mean, that's the real independence we need. Gotcha. Let me ask you some questions about the economy, Andrew. Um, some people think we're on the verge of a recession or already in a recession. Do you agree? And how would uh, the forward party approach uh, the economy and inflation differently from Democrats or Republicans? We're in a really tough spot economically. Uh, you can put me in the camp that thinks that a recession will happen sometime in the next uh, six quarters, certainly. Um, uh, and I hope that the recession is relatively mild. There are forces that are cutting in both directions. Um, but the, the single biggest thing that's pressing on American consumers is inflation. Uh, it, it's going from... Uh, frankly, industry to industry. Um, and many companies are finding that they can actually raise prices and still uh, do a robust business, in some cases, make more money. So that, that they're, they're going to be, uh, in my mind, uh, a, a lot of sources of persistence uh, for inflation, which is going to lead to the Fed needing to raise interest rates um, more and more. I sat down for interviews with both David Rubenstein uh, and Ray Dalio recently. Uh, both of whom have highly relevant uh, perspectives. And, and David Rubenstein talked about how in the 70s, Paul Volcker raised interest rates to a point where, uh, where unemployment was in the double digits uh, uh, and there was a lot of um, economic pain. Uh, and David Rubenstein suggested that this situation is worse than that situation because our public indebtedness levels are much higher and, and we've had low interest rates for so long that uh, that we've kind of maxed out our use of certain tools. So I think it's a very, very difficult spot. Um, I hope we can avoid the worst of it, but uh, I certainly think a recession is inevitable at this point. What about universal basic income? I mean, that's become one of your trademarks. Um, I get that you don't think the stimulus checks contributed to inflation, something you've noted, but many people believe that it does. Um, does that make... UBI harder in this environment now that everyone's second guessing all the stimulus checks from the pandemic? Well, and, and this is a source of frustration uh, for, for me, Andy, because if you do the math, you find that the stimulus, stimulus checks were a very, very small component of the trillions of dollars that we've pumped into the economy. Most mm -hmm. of that money, you know, went into the financial system or the banks or in some cases, large corporates. Uh, so it, it, it saddens me that people are uh, blaming checks that were either spent or saved, you know, months and months ago <laughs> for, for, um, for some of the things that we're uh, experiencing now. Uh, and the, the other aspect of this that makes me uh, upset and agitated is that, is that the enhanced child tax credit, which lifted millions of American children out of poverty, uh, all of the data on that showed that the money was being spent on food and school supplies and fuel and 
40 economists plus, including Nobel Prize winners said, hey, if there's anything we should do, it's continue the enhanced child tax credit. And of course, American politics being what they are, uh, we discontinued it at the beginning of, of this year. Um, uh, and so we, we have to keep our eye on the ball. I mean, when something works, we should be doubling down on it um, and not falling for these overly simplistic uh, attributions, particularly at, at a point when we, we did pump four $5 trillion into the economy uh, and 84% of that plus went into the financial system, large banks, uh, to, some, to some extent, state and local governments. I mean, you know, I'm not against all of the things that happened, but we made a series of choices uh, and we certainly adopt, we certainly prioritize institutions well above individuals and families. Going back, to, so going back to UBI then, is that still front and center when it comes to your, your mindset and your thinking, Andrew? Uh, I, I personally think that poverty is something that uh, we should have alleviated a long time ago. And, and I still think that we have the resources to be able to do that. Including tools like UBI. Including tools that put buying power into the hands of, uh, of consumers. I mean, the trends I ran for president on, uh, like the uh, automation of jobs, I mean, those trends are just accelerating. Um, one of the things that I think we need to be very mindful of is the labor force participation rate continues to hover around 62%, which is anomalously low relative to other developed countries. Now, I spoke to folks in the EU recently. Uh, their labor force participation rate is around 74%. Now, think about that massive gulf of 12% of working age adults who are either in the workforce or not. In America, that translates um, to something like 30 million workers. Um, and 30 million workers, many of whom are less educated men, being out of the workforce is actually driving a lot of the political and social ills. Uh, and this is not, this has nothing to do with stimulus checks or, or, or any uh, of those things because th this trend started 22 years ago, where if you look it up, the labor force participation rate is essentially a straight line down from when the, the time we started automating away the manufacturing jobs. Um, so again, you have to keep your eye on the data. Yeah, I mean, that is, has been a vexing problem um, that persists. I, I wanna ask you about the tech sector. You've worked there. Uh, what is your take on the industry's troubles recently? And what does Washington need to do to fix it? Or does it? Well, gosh, Andy, you made me think of two things with that question. So number one was, uh, did the valuation of various tech stocks uh, get ahead of themselves? And the answer to that is yes. I mean, it, it was relying upon uh, low or zero interest rates that allowed you to, to kind of discount <laughs> values out to some um, far off point of the future and then justify a, a very high valuation. Um, the other aspect is the fact that big tech um, now controls so many aspects of our lives and they went from being uh, everyone's heroes to everyone's villains pretty quickly. Um, one of the cases I'm championing is that we should own our own data, um, which right now is getting sold and resold for over $200 billion a year, uh, which is one reason why the Facebooks and uh, Googles and Amazons are worth a trillion dollars plus in, in many instances. I mean, that's us. That's our, our data. Um, but our government is asleep at the switch on this set of issues. It's threatening to tear our democracy apart. Um, it's damaging and undermining the mental health of our children. Uh, it's making it impossible to function um, uh, in, in terms of 
having a, a set of facts that everyone agrees on. So uh, as usual, our government uh, is years or decades behind the curve. Um, the average senator is 64. They don't understand technology, not to you know, cast aspersions at people who are above a certain age. But uh, you know, the, the truth is that if, if, you didn't, um, if you didn't use some of these technologies, you don't understand just how foundational their impacts are. Um, so uh, I think those are two sets of issues. I'm much more focused on the second um, because uh, if our country is going to get through this, this period, I think that um, we have to remind some of these companies that, uh, that American democracy is more important than their quarterly profits. Speaking of the, the market and the valuations, do you follow the stock market, Andrew? And, and what do you think about it right now? Well, I mean, uh, uh, of course I follow it, Andy, because it, it's such an important driver of, um, uh, of the economy. Um, now, uh, I do want, want to interpose that uh, only 52% of Americans own stock. So for the bottom half of Americans, uh, it's more of an abstraction. Um, and a lot of the people who are watching uh, this can't imagine uh, that to be the case. But, uh, but the top... 20% of Americans own 92% of the stock market wealth. So really, when, when you're looking at stock valuations, you're tracking the fortunes of the top 20% of Americans. Now, a lot of that does uh, affect uh, people who aren't in that bracket um, very naturally because you know, they might run businesses uh, that, that um, have customers uh, that fall in that category. Um, but I do pay attention to the stock market. Um, uh, I, I do think we've gotten way ahead of ourselves. Uh, I think that the adjustment to a more normal interest rate environment is going to be very, very difficult. And what about cryptocurrencies? Should the government regulate that more? What's going on there to your mind? Uh, I'm someone who thinks that there should be sensible, balanced, rational regulation of cryptocurrencies. Uh, I think it would be positive for the industry because uh, the industry has been something of a frontier. Uh, and if everyone felt like uh, there were guardrails uh, and rules of the road, then you might see more people uh, invest and adopt uh, various cryptocurrencies. Um, so I've been making that case in various ways uh, with, with some colleagues uh, in Washington for a, a number of months now. Shifting gears again, Andrew, you recently came out and slammed the Democrats after the Dobbs decision um, overturning Roe v. Wade, arguing they owed people an apology for being bad at their jobs. Why did you put it that way? And uh, what does that accomplish when this has sort of you know, been a top Republican priority for decades? Well, Republicans have been very transparent about their goals for a mm -hmm. long time, uh, Andy, and uh, Democrats have purported uh, to be for uh, protecting women's reproductive rights, which I am 100% uh, uh, aligned with. Um, uh, and I'm frustrated, just like, uh, like millions of other Americans, where you look up and say, hey, like, couldn't you have codified Roe v. Wade into law when you had a legislative majority for years? Could you have played hardball back when Mitch McConnell blocked Merrick Garland, which I found to be incredibly uh, cynical, uh, and destructive uh, of Mitch, but uh, you know Democrats um, didn't respond in kind. Could you have even encouraged Ruth Bader Ginsburg to step down when uh, Obama was still in office, and then have her be replaced by someone uh, of similar uh, ideology? Um, 
the Democrats could have done any of those things. They did not do any of those things. Uh, and so now we're in a position where you're seeing women's reproductive rights curtailed uh, in states around the country. And it, it makes me upset. Um, but uh, I think that Democrats owe us an apology. Like you, you're objectively uh, terrible at your jobs to get played like this. Uh, and, uh, you know, like for you just to turn around and say, hey, send us money so we can uh, undo our own failures um, strikes me as disingenuous. Interesting. Again, if you were in an organization and someone did that to you in your organization, you would look at them and be like, hey, isn't it your job to keep this from happening? And, and this is one of the symptoms of the two party system is that like in an organization, if someone failed you at such a colossal level, you'd make a change. But the Democrats look up and be like, well, can't do anything about it. You know, it's either us or the Republicans. So, you know, send us a check. Uh, and uh, and millions of Americans are like, I've had enough of this. You know, like I want a system that works. Uh, like I might not get everything I want, but this system is going to break down uh, around us uh, and have us hurtling backwards instead of forward. You talked about the two party system being broken, Andrew. Is the Supreme Court broken? Uh, I think the Supreme Court is badly in need of modernization. Um, it should have 18 year term limits instead of lifetime appointments. Um, I think there should be an age limit. Uh, it could be related to the, the, the term limits. Um, if you had the term limits though, uh, and let's say you did stick to nine, by the way, the number of justices is not in the constitution. It's been lower than nine and higher than nine. Um, but if you had nine and you had 18 year terms, then every president would appoint two justices and then you'd have a more balanced rational system pretty quickly um, because it's not contingent upon octogenarians uh, clinging to health so that they can only step down uh, when there's someone of their party in office. This is a, a, a yet another byproduct of a two-party system that is not working. Um, this Supreme Court ruling was not in step with popular uh, opinion. Um, and uh, you have to question a, a system that um, has a, allowed uh, itself to be so far from where most Americans are uh, on a legal rationale that that frankly like you know i i found dubious i mean like it, it it um it does make the supreme court seem like more of a political institution um than a judicial body and that's bad for everybody you've talked about building a human-centered economy focused on supporting families at home what what does that mean and is that related in any way to the dobbs decision do you think yeah uh, uh, right now uh, you know, I like to use my own family. I mean, one of our uh, boys is autistic and my wife has been uh, at home with um, both him and his uh, brother for uh, most of the last number of years. Uh, what kind of value uh, is placed on her work right now in our market-based economy? Zero, even though I think most people would objectively say uh, that it's important and um, may even be the most important work for our, our future. Um, so there are millions of Americans who are in different versions of this. Uh, and I made a case for a human-centered economy based upon the numbers, where you have GDP and stock market prices going up, um, but you also have life expectancy um, going down. Uh, you have uh, millions of Americans who feel like their kids are going to have worse lives than they did, and they are objectively correct. So in that type of situation, what do you do? I mean, again, if you were managing uh, an organization and the metrics were so off base, you would try and line them back up. 
Um, and so to me, our economic health should not be uh, calculated just by GDP, though it can be part of it, but it should be based on things like uh, our health, our mental health, our life expectancy, access to clean air and clean water, uh, whether our, our kids are, are getting uh, uh, an education that's generally going to prepare them for the future, um, both personally and professionally. Like I'm someone who thinks that we should be investing uh, much more in vocational and apprenticeship roles. I think that we, we've stigmatized many working roles uh, and fetishized college. Um, and oh, by the way, we've made college two and a half times more expensive, uh, which has made it difficult for many Americans to, um, to afford it. Um, so uh, our, our measurements are driving us into a ditch uh, and we should instead adopt measurements that correspond to how our people, our families and our communities are doing. That's the premise of a human-centered economy. Concerns about violence against Asian Americans is something you've also spoken about. Is it still a major concern? Is the Biden administration doing enough in your view? No, uh, Andy, hurt people hurt other people. And there are a lot of hurting Americans right now. You know, like when you talk about anti-Asian violence, I think about um, the elderly Asian woman who was uh, kicked on the streets uh, here, here in New York. Um, and the, the question is, uh, what can we do to make it so that someone who might have that kind of um, violent uh, impulse, like you know, be in a situation where they're actually um, getting the help or support that they need, rather than than walking the street and lashing out? Um, so uh, I, I think preventing that um, is something that different communities have to tackle in different ways. Like I, I'm certainly not someone who thinks that uh, that. The Biden administration uh, can somehow uh, prevent that in um, in every case. Um, you know, I do think that there's more that communities can do, um, and it's not just anti-Asian violence. I mean, there are people who are concerned about uh, walking their families down the streets. Um, certainly, in many parts of the country, uh, I, and I, I think that's going to be driving our politics for quite some time. We talked a lot about uh, divisiveness during this conversation, Andrew. What will ultimately bring us back together as a nation? I mean, it seems to me that your party is pointed towards that problem. Are there other things that individuals can do as well, though? Well, so um, uh, and, and I like to talk and think about incentives. So right now, uh, what are the political incentives for our leaders? Uh, it's not to come together and solve problems. It's to avoid getting primaried from within their party's base so that they can keep their job. Um, and then you have media organizations that like to uh, affirm our beliefs and separate us into tribalized camps uh, that think we're right and, and you're wrong. Uh, and then you have social media pouring gasoline on the whole thing. Um, so the, the question is whether over time we're going to go, move farther apart or come together. And I think most Americans would objectively say, hey, we're going to move further apart because that's what's been happening for years. The polarization is growing and growing. Um, so you have to try and tackle each of these problems in turn. Number one, have a positive unifying third party that actually gets rewarded based upon whether uh, good things happen for you and yours that most of us agree with, as opposed to, uh, again, um, trying to set us against each other. And then you have media organizations, and I'm going to count Yahoo among them, that are trying to convey a sense of objective reality uh, and not um, augmenting uh, partisan narratives at every turn. And then you need to try and get social media um, to a point where uh, there is one version of reality that, that 
people can uh, come together and, and discuss. Um, so these are very, very significant problems. Uh, they are solvable if enough of us come together, but it, it starts with having a positive third party movement that Americans can see themselves in that frankly agrees to disagree. It's like you and I are having this conversation. I'm sure if we went down some list, like we'd find something we disagree on, um, but we can agree that this system's not working, um, that we'd like a system that actually rewards people based upon solving problems uh, and compromising. Uh, and that's what most Americans want. The question is, why can't we have what we want? And the answer we're told is that, hey, you have this two-party system that, by the way, is totally fabricated. It's not in the Constitution. It's changed several times in our history and is actually overdue for a political alignment. Uh, so uh, let, let's solve the problem. I mean, you know, like, are, are we really as a people just going to stay on a boat that we know is heading towards a waterfall? <laughs> or are we going to look around and say, hey, let's build a motor. Let's go on another path. Uh, you know, we, we, can, we can do it. We've done it before. Final question, Andrew, this program is called Influencers, and I'm curious as how you see using your influence. Well, uh, I hope, Andy, that I can let Americans know uh, that we don't have to accept uh, our lives and our government uh, getting worse and worse over time. We actually can solve problems and come together uh, and, and uh, build a movement that millions of us have been waiting for. So to the extent that I can influence uh, people's sense of optimism and possibility uh, that we can actually improve uh, our politics in this way, uh, that's what I'm spending all of my time and energy doing. We have some incredible announcements coming up. And if you want to join us, go to forwardparty.com or andrewyang.com because you're going to see this movement grow and grow through the 24 cycle. And I'm going to close on something just to, to use my uh, crystal ball. I think it's Trump on the Republican party. I think it's Joe Biden uh, on the democratic side. 58% of Americans do not want either of those choices yet that's what the two party system is probably going to deliver to us. Their combined age will be 159 years old. Uh, it, it's, uh, uh, it, it's a staggering sign of just how broken this uh, two party system is and we're going to work to give Americans a real choice in that uh, election, not just one or two choices, but multiple choices. We will see. Andrew Yang, presidential candidate and author of Forward Notes on the Future of Our Democracy and founder of the Forward Party. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Surworth.